10 years in the land of Canaan. It's easy to overlook the passing of time as you read through a book like Genesis. There seem to be 10 years between chapter 15 and chapter 16, and 13 years between chapter 16 and chapter 17. The narrator of the story is giving us the edited version of the story of Abraham. Maybe the fact that 10 years had passed between 15 and 16 accounts for a change in Abraham. During that 10 years, the drama of chapter 15, where we are told the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, do not be afraid, Abram. Maybe the memory of that had faded. Perhaps for 10 years, the word of the Lord didn't come to Abram in a vision. It was all quiet. He was just left with his family to get on with it. Perhaps he and Sarah had started to get frightened that no sign of a son, with no sign of a son, the whole enterprise was going to sort of come to nothing. As we look at the passage, I think it divides neatly into two sections. Uh, You might want to have it open in front of you as we look at it. Uh, I can't remember what page it's on, but it's near the beginning. The first section is the first six verses, what you might call what Sarah did when the Lord seemed absent. And the second section is verses 7 to 16, what became of Hagar when the Lord intervened. It seems to me that Abram is a much reduced presence in this story, almost a few short cameo appearances, if you like, And the central figure, certainly in the first part of the drama, is Sarah. Poor Sarah, month after month, year after year, disappointment after disappointment, no pregnancy. And that was a hard thing for her to bear. And perhaps all the more difficult because she felt there was a lot riding on it. It must have seemed to her that the Lord's extravagant promises from years before were going to come to nothing And it was down to her failure. Perhaps she comforted herself with the thought that it was the Lord who was to blame or understood it in that way. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. I want to say something at this point about what you might call the unseen actor in the drama. And that is the culture of the time. We're probably talking about, I don't know, uh, nearly 4,000 years ago. This is a nomadic family speaking a foreign language with very different ways. And in that particular culture, what was a done thing under the circumstances of infertility? What did people usually do? For Sarah, what were her friends and relatives suggesting? Well, it was exactly the thing that she suggested and recommended to her husband, Abraham. Go into my servant girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So what does Abraham do? Does he say, don't be ridiculous, woman. We're not like the people around here. The Lord has got it all in hand. We just need to wait patiently and he'll work things out. In that conversation with his wife, he has a choice. Go with the cultural common sense or risk it stand out and be counter-cultural. Here we see a man with a faltering faith. 
Perhaps he and Sarah had wondered if they should give the Lord a bit of a hand sorting things out. Perhaps they reasoned, what would be the harm in organizing a spare offspring for Abraham? Little did they know the consequences of this seemingly innocent choice. So Abraham listens to the voice of Sarah and planted the seed in the Egyptian slave girl's womb, a girl now rebadged a wife. Pausing in the story here, is there a challenge for us? Are we facing a fork in the road? The choice between continuing to have faith, to believe the Lord, to wait until he resolves the situation, and on the other hand, taking matters into our own hands, going along with what culture dictates and expects as normal, as mainstream. It brings to mind the illustration that Simon and Roland used a few weeks ago about the broad and narrow way. If you were here, you'll remember the big tent easy. Everybody can pass through there in volume without difficulty. And on the other hand, the small passage where you've got to choose to squeeze through, chosen by those people of faith who follow Jesus and hold on to his promises. The other other more encouraging thing perhaps to draw from this story is this. If you have a faltering faith like Abraham's, If sometimes you have chosen to take matters into your own hands, have gone with what people usually do with the majority and look back and think it was a mistake, if you've started life on plan A and through your choices feel as if you've ended up on plan B or C or D or whatever, do not be afraid. As God did with Abraham, He can accomplish what he needs to accomplish in spite of our faltering faith and regular wrong turns. And as you'll realize, the crazy thing is this. Sometimes it seems to be the wrong turns that deliver us to a place of usefulness and blessing. The Lord really does work in mysterious ways. So what about Hagar? With our modern sensibilities, this is a revolting, stomach-churning story of abuse. The defenseless Egyptian slave girl handed over to the octogenarian master for reproductive purposes is one way of describing it. I wouldn't encourage you to dwell on the practicalities. Just to say, if this was a news story that came up on the television, Helen would be insisting that we turn the sound down because I don't want to listen to the the details or hear the details. And even though it was culturally acceptable 4,000 years ago, it's hard to imagine that Hagar didn't feel like a victim taken advantage of. And the most she could do was try and get her own back on the instigator of all this, Sarah. So the story continues with a major fallout between Sarah and Hagar, where the rather unimpressive Abraham encourages his wife to, in verse 6, do to her as you please. So Sarah does. She dealt harshly with her and she ran away. Then from verse 7 we have the second part of the story, which I'm entitling, What Became of Hagar When the Lord Intervened. I want to, at this point, step away from the detail of the story to consider the book of Genesis as a whole. Some of the big themes in this book are about God as creator, as the one who began everything. 
And then goes on to offer promises and blessings to one particular family, the family of Abraham and Sarah. And along the way in the story of Genesis in the earlier chapters, we've got a number of examples of people taking wrong turns, making wrong choices. It starts, of course, with Adam and Eve. And then the builders of the Tower of Babel continues here with Abraham and Sarah. But what does God's blessing amount to? What does blessing amount to? It seems to me a term that's become really devalued in our time. Bless you, people will say when you sneeze. Oh, bless him, people will affectionately say of a small child when he does something cute. And then there are some serious Christians who will say, God bless at the slightest provocation. I've recently found myself signing off emails with blessings. Uh, what, What do we mean when we wish God's blessing on people? In the time of Genesis, an indication of blessing from God meant plentiful family, lots of material possessions and land. But I think it also means something more fundamental than that. In my new dictionary, it says that to be blessed by God means to live in a relationship with God expressed in a holy life and a holy lifestyle. And one of the consequences of that sort of uh, approach is fertility in the most general sense. The land is fertile, and so when seeds are planted, a harvest grows. Without any effort on my part, stuff grows in my garden. In fact, as some of you may know, we've been having some building work done, and the building materials are strewn all over the garden. And as a consequence, we've done absolutely no gardening for the last year. Uh, And not surprisingly, things have grown all over the place and profusely. And I noticed the other day that emerging from the neglected hedge was a blackberry bush laden with plump blackberries, just enough to add to my breakfast cereal, and very nice it was too. But my point is this, God is in relationship with the natural world, and as a consequence, stuff grows, flourishing happens. Back in Genesis 1.28, it says in relation to humankind and to, Abraham, and, into, and to Adam, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. At a human level, flourishing and evidence of blessing happens in the context of a relationship with God and our appropriate behavior. And that combination results in flourishing. To return to the story, God is determined to bless bless Abraham so that he and his family flourish. And it begins with Hagar, a most unexpected place, just like the blackberry bush emerging from my hedge, even in the midst of human error, taking matters into their own hands, making wrong choices. God's determination to enter into the story and produce flourishing is seen. Such is the grace of God. So poor Hagar runs away. This is Hagar, the young, abused Egyptian slave girl. Is God bothered about such little people? Oh yes, he certainly is. An angel of the Lord appears and tells her to go back to her mistress, and she does go back, but she goes back stronger, and she goes back stronger because of three things. 
The narrator tells it pretty straight, but I think there's a, more than a hint of humor here. Uh, I wonder if the angel actually said to Hagar, do you want the good news or the bad news? Uh, and, and she says, I'll, I'll have the good news then. And he says, well, the good news is in two parts. The good news then, so she's told she's going to be blessed by the Lord. Verse 10, it says, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. It's like winning the lottery in, in those days because there wasn't a lottery then. And the second part of the good news is, it's a boy and you're going to call him Ishmael. What doesn't come out in the reading is the meaning of the name Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. And what the angel, or God through the angel is saying to Hagar is, all that you've been through, all the times that you've cried out in distress about the way you've been mistreated, the Lord hears all that. What a comfort that would have been. He hears and he's on your side. And the same thought should comfort us too. The Lord knows what we are going through. He hears. He knows about our distress. He's on our side. And he will see justice done in the end. Okay, and the bad news? Well, there it is in verse 12. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. Really? You can hear Hagar cry, why couldn't I just have a normal kid? I mean, and maybe he was okay until he became a teenager. Who knows? But, but, but I digress. There was something else that made Hagar stronger before she returned to her mistress. This encounter with the angel happened at a spring of water. It says in verse 7, described slightly differently in verse 14 as a well. And the well gets named Maybe Hagar named it. It was henceforth known as Beer Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. Well of the living one who sees me. So Hagar goes back to Sarah, carrying a son called God Hears, and recalling place a well called Well of the Living One Who Sees Me. It's so easy to forget important realities about God. But for Hagar, for the rest of her life, there was no forgetting these characteristics of God. He hears and he sees. Every time she addressed her son, she was reminded, God hears, God hears, come in, your tea's ready. Every time she drew water from a well, she recalled the fact that God sees. To look at the whole thing from a different angle, you remember that story in Luke 24 about Jesus raised from the dead appearing to his two disciples on the road to Emmaus as they walked together it says in verse 27 of Luke 24 then beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures Genesis is traditionally considered to be have been written by Moses and I think Jesus is likely to have covered this story in Genesis 16. Perhaps he said to them, when you read it, remember the promise of blessing from Abraham was pointing to me. And it ultimately depends on God's grace. The Lord doesn't wash his hands of Abraham, but is determined to keep the covenant alive and hold to his promises. As you may know, if you've read on in Genesis, later on in the story, 
Isaac appears, and then Jacob, and then through the line over the centuries, eventually Jesus from that line appears. And the reality is that Jesus is the one who unlocks the real explosion of blessing. Jesus might have gone on to explain it's his death and resurrection that have enabled the Holy Spirit to be released and the meek, like Hagar, will be blessed when they see God. They will experience transformation and flourishing. The proliferation of Abraham's descendants after that Jesus explosion is on a scale that Abraham would never have been able to imagine. But it would be like looking up at the stars there are something like 2.38 billion people around the world who these days would call themselves Christian. The Lord had kept his promises to bless Abraham and we here today are part of the evidence of that. As I finish, I just want to say, the Lord bless you as you relate to him, as you try to walk in his ways, May you flourish in every area in your life.